Welcome back to part two of Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. With Lucia and me today is the Reverend Dr. Angela Yarber of the Holy Women Icons Project. Um, I'd love to return to something that I think relates to being a whole person in teaching and learning in activism, um, which is the the topic of loss. So you talk about losing your advisor, um, losing a life that you're saying goodbye to a life that you thought you might have in the academy is a theme in your work, um, the loss of land through colonial dispossession. So I'm wondering if you could reflect a little bit on how this theme of, of losing um, and even grief has shaped your consciousness as an educator and as an activist and as a scholar. Thank you. And, and to me, it's fitting if I can say, you know, we're recording today at the beginning of Dia de los Muertos, which is important uh, because I have a part Mexican family. Um, and uh, grief and loss has been a huge theme for me and my work over the past two and a half years because my younger brother died. Um, he was an addict and addiction stole his life two and a half years ago. And it's something that even though I've worked in the academy these years and had students and students relatives pass away and I was a pastor also for 14 years so I've um, officiated a lot of funerals and been involved in a lot of that but until it was my brother Mm. um, it did it was not in my bones and now it is in a way that um, I have yet to articulate a lot of it but um, a whole series of the Holy Women Icons Project is these Holy Women Icons of Grief from different cultures and traditions around the world because I think that in the same way that hospice caregivers and workers talk about disenfranchised grief where it's difficult to grieve someone who's died um, by suicide or who has died by addiction or some other form of grief that makes it more challenging in Western culture to grieve. Um, I think that the West as a whole that our grief is disenfranchised because it's completely um, severed from our bodies and in some ways our hearts that a lot of our traditional grieving practices have been taken away and commodified. And so that we have this funeral industrial complex, um, most often led by straight white men in power who are making a lot of money off of the backs of mourners and people who can't afford to give their family the quote unquote respectable Uh, funeral that they think that their family member deserves. And so in doing that, I read, um, I believe her name is Caitlin Maudie's book at Eternity's Gate. So she's a mortician who's really radicalizing the process of death and dying in LA Mm -hmm. and has this great nonprofit that helps folks who are um, grieving and to return to a lot of um, natural ways of dying and death where family, where it returns to the family. And historically that's been women who have cared for dead bodies. and have talked with a lot of death doulas in ways that I haven't quite created the language for my academic work. I don't quite have the theories, but that they talk about how in Western cultures and in the United States in particular, because so much has been commodified that we don't have handles for our grief or containers for our grief. Mm -hmm. And so I think in a lot of the work that I'm trying to do in retreats with the Holy Women Icons Project, and even in some ways with the course, is to create containers and handles 
for grieving that are, um, I don't want to say safe or brave spaces, but spaces to explore and learn about respectfully the ways other people and other cultures and traditions and faiths approach grief that are more embodied and more holistic and that don't have an end point. Hmm. And, and I hadn't thought about that with regard to the loss of land with decolonize with land being colonized, but I think that's a really brilliant and thoughtful way to think about it. So I, I need to tease that out more in my mind and in my heart. But I think that the work that we're currently doing is, is not constructive so much as it is space providing. So creating these containers or these handles for people to be able to talk about these things um, in real ways that don't often have neat and tidy answers. Yeah, thank yeah. you for that. That that makes a lot of sense. I feel like parts of your answer, a death, a death um, from addiction, has a systemic element, just like the dis the dispossession of land is systemic. Yes. And so I think that there's something in your mm -hmm. answer that the politics of pedagogy can be shaped as and through sort of politics of connecting what can feel so individual to yes. larger systems in which yes. we're embedded. I think that that's so true, especially because I, I think, for example, um, I taught a course that became very popular at Wake Forest University called Gender, Food, and the Body in Popular Culture. And for whatever reason, it developed quite a following in the on the football team and then on the baseball team. So what started as a class, you know, it's a women's gender and sexuality studies course. And what started as a class that was predominantly women that were majors or minors ended up by my, the last time teaching it, I had, I think over 20 male athletes and hmm. then four. A lot of that is because the athletes get to register first. So we said in the future, we'll set it up where, uh, you know, only a certain number so that it doesn't get completely taken over. Um, but I, on the one hand, I said, this is great because now we have football players leaving the classroom as feminists and engaging in like ecofeminist eating, you know, where they're interviewed on television after a football game and said, oh, maybe it's the pea protein from going vegetarian for two weeks that's, <laughs> and things like that. But, um, but what's interesting is that in those courses so often, especially my white male students, would talk a lot about personal responsibility and 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 the idea of when we talk about um, addiction or these systemic losses and systemic oppression that because they had not experienced them, they didn't believe they were real. And then a lot of really interesting conversations would happen with a lot of my athletes of color who had experienced it, but who were male and experienced it in different ways than some of the women who were both white and women of color in the class. And that just these really generative conversations came up at these connections between the notion of personal responsibility and these systemic issues to say, in the example of my brother, yes, there's an issue of personal responsibility because you're choosing to do drugs, but a history of poverty and violence and a culture that doesn't let you have emotions and all of these other things and 
jail and arrests and all of that play into it, that it's not just the personal responsibility element. And so to lift up interconnectedness in so many different ways, I think can help us be a healthier society, healthier classrooms, a healthier world to acknowledge all of these different systems at play. So I appreciate you naming and honoring that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have one of your icons in my office, um, and it's Dolores Huerta, um, and one of your holy women icons. And for me, she is the icon for our living wage campaign on campus. And yes. I think all the time about what you were just saying of how the classroom, um, you know, is it, we have our individual lives that we come in with in the classroom. Also, you know, for many people, different kinds of systemic oppressions and experiences with that, experiences with loss and grief. Um, but off, so often in the traditional classroom, there's that disconnect that you talk about. Um, you come in, you sit in rows, you know, there's a lecture, you know, the banking model. Um, and so I think um, some of what I see in your syllabi and uh, in your work and, and as revealed in the art um, that inspires me um, is a, a call for those who have uh, practiced, have, have done revolutionary practice in the past um, to speak to the present and those of us who are working for justice in the present. So could you talk more about your icons and uh, what drives you to focus on these historical and mythic and other women who, um, you know, who drive you also in your, your teaching and activism? Sure. I, I actually didn't know that you have a Dolores Huerta print in your office. So that's um, exciting to me. In my studio right now, I have her original. She's sitting right behind me. Yeah. Um, and in fact, uh, one of the quotes on our website, holywomenicons.com, on every page is something from Dolores Huerta, who's the only living icon that I've painted. Um, yeah, well, Maya Angelou was living when I painted her, but she has since died. Um, but Dolores Huerta says, walk the streets with us into history, get off the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. And there's something about that that just um, resonates so much in, in classrooms, too, that it's not just in your desk, but when you walk out of the classroom and that your classroom is the world, you know, this um, kind of cliche uh, little bumper sticker quote, life is the school, love is the lesson, that it's, it's not just what happens in the classroom, but when your classroom expands. And I think that to answer some of your question and address these icons, that's what these revolutionary women from history and mythology teach me, is that the classroom is an expansive space. It's not just something that you um, pay to go to in an academic ivory tower. Um, I think for myself as a first generation college student in my family, and in fact, one of the only folks to finish high school, and then to go on and do all this other work is to also acknowledge that there are ways of knowing and wisdom and knowledge that are present in my family, even though they didn't have access to that higher education. So I think because my father, who only finished the eighth grade, um, knows about mechanics and taught me some about them, because of that, I have the wisdom and knowledge when I go to get mm -hmm. my car fixed on to not be swindled by someone who's trying to screw over the woman coming in to have her car fixed. Mm -hmm. um, 
but when I think about a lot of these revolutionary women, it kind of goes back to, I have all these glimpses throughout my life, like 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, 1999, I was hunkered in this Russian Orthodox church as the American embassy was being bombed and gazing at all of these brooding whitewashed faces with hands lifted in this ever frightening benediction and wondering where are all the women? You know, and then several years later, I went to St. Catherine's Monastery on the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt, which is the oldest collection of Christian Mm -hmm. icons in the world. And I scanned the scene and there are only two women crammed among all the, all the icons, one Mary, the mother of Jesus, which we could spend a whole podcast on. And then the other Jephthah's daughter, who's this dancing nameless daughter who's sacrificed as a burnt offering by her father. And so the two that you have are this one who's this pious virgin who delivers the child of God. And then this nameless daughter who's sacrificed. And then as I started working, especially with Ronald Nakasone and studying Buddhist and Hindu iconography, there are certainly some women, but way more men still. So in this temple of a thousand Buddhas, no women. And as I continue to ask these questions, I realized that as an artist and as a scholar and a writer, that it's incumbent on me to try to offer some kind of a corrective. So about a decade ago, I started painting these icons and I gave traditional iconography a folk feminist twist. So I say that feminism is the lens, folk is the style, because I see a lot of iconography for those outside of those particular traditions is quite inaccessible, that if you don't know the language of what the different symbols mean, they don't make any sense to you. And so to create something that's a little bit more accessible, not as brooding, and to tell these stories that have been hidden from us or strategically erased or violated. The stories of revolutionary women from history like Polly Murray and Gloria Anzaldúa, who, mm-hmm. you know, many of whom I didn't even learn about until I was in my 30s. And this is the work I do. You know, this is my field and I still hadn't learned of them. And these women from mythology, because most often we're taught about the Zeuses instead of the Demeters and Nephthys and... Uh, Pele's and Papahanaumoku's, um, that there are these amazing women throughout history and mythology. And in this time, I've painted over a hundred of them mm-hmm. as folk feminist icons and then written about them in books and um, online forums and magazines and things like that. And their stories form the content of the retreats and the courses that we lead through the Holy Women Icons Project to say that um, returning to this power saw metaphor that when we're feeling too drained because of these power structures that we can look back throughout history today at these revolutionary women both historical and mythological and realize that we have this subversive sisterhood of saints that surrounds us and upholds us still that is within us too and that that can be a really empowering thing because you have the practical, the skills transfer. So that, for example, in learning about Gloria Anzaldúa, the Chicana queer feminist um, theorist, um, that I can learn about bridging because she talks about bridging the divides between cultures and traditions and code switching. And that that is a skill that she teaches me that, that then I can employ in my life. And then in sharing that with others, other folks can employ in their lives. So you have the skills transfer and all of the work that these women have done throughout history and mythology. And then you also have this kind of cloud of witnesses that is sustaining you so that you know that you're not alone in your work. 
whereas in most classrooms, if you open a history book, your cloud of witnesses is a bunch of white men. Yeah. Um, and, and we need to offer a corrective to that. So that's part of the, the thrust or the aim of the Holy Women Icons Project is to research these revolutionary women whose stories are undertold or untold, to paint them and then write about them and then share them with others in ways that doesn't um, appropriate, that tells the fullness of the story while simultaneously saying there are elements of yourself in all of these stories, even if your marginalities are different than this particular woman's marginalities. Mm -hmm. And so even in, in teaching others with this creative, um, intentional creativity process, or in teaching about them in a classroom or on a retreat, or even someone, like you said, buying an icon, which goes right back to the nonprofit, the money doesn't go to me, <laughs> mm -hmm. and then putting it up in your office, then when you look at it, you are emboldened to walk the streets with us into history, to get off the sidewalk. Um, and I even think, you know, I put on my Frida Kahlo earrings and I, when, literally when I put them on, I say, be a revolutionary <laughs> because she was a Mexican revolutionary. And so I think of all of these different women, whether it's the little kind of talismans or tokens of a print or an earring, or whether it's learning the fullness of that story and then being galvanized to keep doing that work in the world, that these aren't just little paintings or little writings. It's my hope that it's revolutionary work that like Bell Hooks, who we've been talking about says, the function of art is to do more than tell it like it is, it's to imagine what's possible. And that we, when we surround ourselves with these images and these stories, and then when we look in the mirror and see some of those stories and images dwelling within ourselves, then we can imagine and create a better world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. I'm curious about who you're painting now. That's a great question. Um, I am working on three pieces simultaneously right now. Um, I've started working on, um, I call them archetype, archetype goddesses or virtue goddesses, where instead of all of my paintings have a, a big heart and then kind of a, a poem or the cry of the woman's heart is written on there, something that I write that captures the essence of what that historical or mythological woman does. But I wanted to expand a bit bigger to create um, these icons that just have one word. So I've recently returned to really large canvases because I, I live in a tiny house and I traveled full time for two years, so I could only use really tiny canvases. So this was my first really big canvas again. So it's this enormous canvas um, that I call the goddess of abundance and her heart just says abundance across it. Um, but the ones that I'm working on now are, I've had a commission for Judith, who is the um, woman from the apocryphal book of Judith in the Hebrew Bible, who was just this awesome subversive figure. She was described as a pious widow who was beautiful, wealthy, and wise. And never in Hebrew Bible, do you have a woman who's described in all of those things? Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you really read her story at, at the end, she's given all of these marriage proposals after she decapitates the enemy who's trying to kill the Israelites um, and then leads all of the outcasts in a subversive dance to celebrate. She gets all of these marriage proposals and she instead chooses to spend her life with her quote handmaid. To me, is, that's a very queer, a very queer thing to do. So, so I would contend that Judith was likely queer. So I'm working on a commission of her 
and a commission of Judith Jameson, who is still living. So she would be my second living um, icon that I painted. She's um, a dancer who got her start with Alvin Ailey and still is the artistic director, I believe, of the Alvin Ailey Company and is most famous for a piece that he choreographed called Cry, which um, was kind of about the lamentation of black mothers. It's a stunning piece. Um, so I've been commissioned to work on those and then I'm working on another virtue goddess, the goddess of hope. And it's interesting for me because um, over the past few years, I've switched to where the bulk of the women that I paint are women of color and I don't really paint very many white men, women anymore um, for a whole host of reasons. But this archetype goddess, I've decided to paint um, as, a, as a white woman with blonde hair because um, within the past year, a new little, a new little life has come into our world um, through foster care and recently adopted our daughter, Lillian Hope. And I thought that given all that she has been through, she has a traumatic brain injury and has been through foster care and experienced a lot of um, trauma in her short two years of life that I wanted to paint a goddess on her behalf that was a reflection of her. And so that's one that I'm working on that has been a really interesting um, way for me as an artist and as a person who's grappling with my own white privilege um, mm -hmm. to paint this on behalf of, of my daughter and those who are struggling to find hope in in their lives and in their world. So those are the three that I'm working on right now and that I'm always researching at least 30 others at the same time. So for all the hundred that I've painted, you know, there's lists of hundreds more. So I'm glad this is a lifelong project that I'm working on. Yeah, and you just mentioned you live in a tiny house. Right. Yeah, you were on cable. Yes, <laughs> we built our house with the television show Tiny House Nation. Um, and it aired in 2017, I believe, summer of 2017, um, if folks were interested in finding it. So we live in this off-grid tiny house. And a lot of that is because of our eco-feminist uh, commitments that we want to live as sustainably as possible. And also financial, we built as big as we could afford. Um, and so it's this small space, but we live in, in Hawaii where most of our life is outdoors. Mm -hmm. And we have since then, my wife has built... Um, me a tiny studio. So I, I have my art studio and writing studio now. So my canvases can be bigger because I'm not sharing them with a kitchen and bedrooms and children and a table and all of the other things. <laughs> um, so when students come out here, they paint in our tiny studio and they don't, they don't stay in the tiny house just because that can't function for 10 people. But they do come on the land and work on our orchard and garden and in the tiny studio and learn about uh, sustainable ways of living and off-grid living. Uh, the whole holistic thing has been just so wonderful to see these connections and how you make them, Angela. There is on your website, you're wearing uh, a t-shirt that says, Be Revolutionary. Yes. And as an artist, artist, teacher, eco-feminist, uh, and more, um, that could you talk about that shirt and that uh, message that you're sending out. Yes. So I will, uh, a little shameless plug if folks are interested, if you go to holywomenicons.com, uh, not only can you register for online and in-person retreats, we have one coming up over New Year in Volcano Hawaii, um, and buy prints, all that go into the nonprofit, but you can also buy the shirt if you want. So it says be revolutionary, and it's hard to see in the picture, but around it, 
<clears throat> are the names of a big number of the women. There's probably about 75 on this shirt who I've painted. So you've got Dolores Huerta, Audre Lorde, Pele, Sojourner Truth, um, all of these revolutionary women from history and mythology that are in small print around it, uh, reminding us that we, there are a lot of revolutionaries in our world, and so we have a lot of guides to lead us on the way. But I think that in our current social, political, spiritual, academic landscape, that we, we don't need much more of the status quo. We need people to do subversive revolutionary mm -hmm. things um, that systems need to be overturned um, and dismantled and a new world needs to be created and that sounds idealistic and um, probably even apocalyptic in some ways mm -hmm. <laughs> coming from your class today but I, I think that in, in some ways that that t-shirt is um, is a call for all of us, all of us to be called in to be revolutionaries in big and little ways, whether it is um, something as small as bringing your reusable bags to the grocery store to help eliminate waste, um, to calling politicians to the way that you vote, to the way that you live in the world. And that um, I believe it was Freya Stark. She's someone I've painted. She was this really intrepid traveler called a passionate nomad, one of kind of the first travel writers. And she says, I would never dare think, or I would never dare believe what I will not do. Hmm. And so it's this call that it's hard. Our virtues can be burdened, as Lisa Tessman would say, in a lot of ways that it's hard to live according to the virtues and the hmm. beliefs that we want to live. But it's this reminder. And for me, a tangible reminder as I put the t-shirt on. Um, that I'm called to do revolutionary work in this world in big and small ways. And um, I'm not doing that alone. There are a lot of people who've paved the way for me to do this work that I'm doing, for both of you to be doing this work that you're doing, and that we're not going it alone, that the three of us here are having this conversation together. We're not just trying to um, make our radical pedagogy on our own but in community, in this subversive sisterhood of saints, which isn't limited only to women, um, in really revolutionary ways. And so it's a, it's a call and an admonition and an invitation and a challenge in a, in a really creative way. Well, I think that's a wonderful place to end on. Thank you, Angela, for being with us. And thank you so much for having me. So everyone, uh, be revolutionary. Well, thanks. We've got the call and the challenge now. Thank you for listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. With Lucia Hulsether and me today has been the Reverend Dr. Angela Yarber of the Holy Women Icons Project. I want to thank my producer, China Wilson, my audio engineer, Aaliyah Harris, and Lance Hagen, along with Aviva and the Flying Penguins for the intro and interstitial music, and Paul Myrie for the outro music. Paul's music is available on ReverbNation.com.